Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 35, 1 Kings chapter 22. This is the end of 1 Kings. This week we conclude our extensive journey through the first for the book of First Kings. And when we meet next time, we will start the book of Second Kings. Now remember when we do, however, that there's no actual division between these two books. The divide was artificial. And Second Kings is simply a continuation without delay from First Kings. That said, there is one aspect of 2 Kings that is noticeably different from 1 Kings, and it is that 2 Kings focuses mostly on the kings of Judah, while 1 Kings has focused primarily on the kings of Israel. There's a good reason for that, and we'll discuss that when we start 2 Kings. Now, we finished up the last lesson with one of the few remaining true prophets of Jehovah that still remained in the northern kingdom of Israel. And he was summoned to prophesy before King Ahav of Israel and King Jehoshaphat of Judah. Michal was brought from his prison cell to the threshing floor just outside the gates of Samaria at the behest of King Jehoshaphat, who was skeptical of the 400 prophets that King Ahab had produced to essentially rubber stamp his plan to attack the city of Remote Gilead. Now, Remote Gilead was a city located on the east bank of the Jordan, and it was located along a critically important trade route known as the King's Highway. It was currently in the hands of the king of Syria. And this king had no intentions of turning it over to the king of Israel. Likely it was King Ahav's goal of acquiring remote Gilead that was the, uh, was the premise for arranging this state visit of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. By winning this city back in a joint effort, it would be of substantial economic benefit to both kingdoms. Yet, Jehoshaphat was well aware of just how far away from Jehovah and into idol worship that Ahav had led his people. So when Jehoshaphat was reluctant to seal this agreement to establish an expeditionary, uh, expeditionary uh, military force with Ahav, unless the Lord was consulted first, Ahav naturally called upon his willing group of false prophets who would tell the king anything he wanted to hear. And when Jehoshaphat proved to be unconvinced with the unanimous pronouncements of easy victory, by these 400 prophets and their leader, Zidkiah, Jehoshaphat asked if there wasn't an old school prophet of Jehovah still around. And Ahab grudgingly admitted there was one, but not surprisingly, this prophet was imprisoned. <laughs> because the last thing any dictator wants is for the truth to get out 
And King Ahab wanted nothing to do with this old school prophet of God because all Michiao ever seemed to bring Ahab was a divine message of warning, chastisement, and judgment. And we concluded by discussing that when boiled down to its basic elements, the reality is that King Ahab didn't want to hear the real word of God. He preferred something that sounded like the word of God, but it was more in tune with the political correctness of his era. He wanted a word that was more flexible, more accommodating to his preferences and plans. Unfortunately, modern believers are living under the same circumstances. When today, many of our mainstream churches profess that they're teaching the Word of God, when in fact they're teaching doctrines of men that purport to reflect the Word of God. And these teachings mostly tell the congregation what they want to hear. Well, let's reread a portion of 1 Kings chapter 22. We're going to read from verse 13 to the end. Verse 13 to the end. Uh, That is page 399 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. The messenger who had gone to call Michal said to him, Here, now, the prophets are unanimously predicting success for the king. Please, let your word be like the word of one of them. Say something good. But Michal answered, As Adonai lives, whatever Adonai says to me is what I will say. And when he reached the king, the king asked of him, Michal, should we go up and attack remote Gilead or should we hold off? And he answered, Go up. You'll succeed. Adonai will hand it over to the king. And the king said to him, How many times do I have to warn you to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of Adonai? Then he said, I saw all Israel scattered all over the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And Adonai said, These men have no leader. Let everyone go home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Joseph, Didn't I tell you? Didn't I tell you he wouldn't prophesy good things about me, but bad? And Michal continued, Therefore hear the word of Adonai. I saw Adonai sitting on his throne with the whole army of heaven, standing by him on his right and on his left. And Adonai asked, Who will entice Ahav to go up to his death? at remote Gilead. And one of them said, Do it this way. Another said, Do it that way. And then a spirit stepped up, stood in front of Adonai and said, I will entice him. And Adonai asked, How? And he answered, I will go and be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all of his prophets. And Adonai said, You will succeed in enticing him. Go, do it. So now Adonai has put a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. Meanwhile, Adonai has ordained disaster for you. Then Zidkiah, the son of Canaanah, came up and slapped Michal in the face. And he said, How did the spirit of Adonai leave me to speak to you? Michal said, You'll find out the day you go into an inside room trying to hide. And the king of Israel says, Seize Michal, take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and Yoash, the king's son. Say, the king says to put this man in prison, feed him only bread and water, not very much of that, till I return in peace. 
And Mikael said, If you return in peace at all, Adonai has not spoken through me. And then he added, Do you hear me, you people, all of you? So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to remote Gilead, and the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you, you put on your robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Aram had ordered the 32 chariot commanders, don't attack anyone of either high or low rank, only the king of Israel. So when the chariot commanders saw Jehoshaphat, they said, this must be the king of Israel. And they turned to attack him. But Jehoshaphat gave a yell so that the chariot commander saw that he wasn't the king of Israel and they stopped pursuing him. However, one soldier shot an arrow at random and it struck the king of Israel between his lower armor and his breastplate. So the king said to the chariot driver, Turn the reins, take me out of this fighting, I'm collapsing from my wounds. But the fighting grew fiercer that day and they propped the king upright in his chariot facing Aram until he died in the evening with the blood streaming from his wound onto the floor of the chariot. Around sundown, a cry spread throughout the ranks, every man to his own town, every man to his own land. So the king died. He was brought to Shomron. They buried the king in Shomron. They washed the chariot at the pool of Shomron where the prostitutes bathed. The dogs licked up his blood in keeping with the word Adonai had spoken. Other activities of Ahav's reign, all of his accomplishments, the ivory palace he built, all the cities he built are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. So Ahav slept with his ancestors and Ahaziah, his son, became king in his place. Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, began his reign over Judah and the fourth year of Ahav, king of Israel. Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he began to rule, and he ruled 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Azuvah, the daughter of Shilki. He lived in the manner of Asa, his father, and he did not turn away from it, doing what was right from Adonai's perspective, although the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed. They presented offerings on the high places. Jehoshaphat made peace with the king of Israel. Other activities of Jehoshaphat, all his power that he demonstrated, how he made war, are recorded in the annals of the kings of Judah. He rid the land of male and female cult prostitutes remaining from the time of his father, Asa. There had previously been no king in Edom, but now a deputy was made king, and Jehoshaphat built some large Tarshish ships to go to Ophir for gold. But they didn't make the voyage because they were wrecked at Etzion Gever. Ahaziah, the son of Ahav, suggested to Jehoshaphat that his men should go to sea with Jehoshaphat's men, but Jehoshaphat wouldn't agree. So Jehoshaphat slept with his ancestors. He was buried with his ancestors in the city of David, his ancestor, and Yehoram, his son, became king in his place. Ahaziah, the son of Ahav, began his reign over Israel in Shomron in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he ruled for two years over Israel. He did what was evil from Adonai's perspective, living in the manner of his father, his mother, and Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, by which, in, by which he led Israel into sin. He also served Baal. He worshipped him. And he made Adonai, the God of Israel, angry in keeping with everything his father had done.
Now we've discussed holy war in the past and how holy war is not war that is waged by someone who merely thinks that they have a good, pious reason for engaging in such a conflict, such as the Crusades. Rather, holy war is a war that is specifically ordained or perhaps openly sanctioned by Jehovah. I think that while one reason that Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, wanted to inquire of the Lord's prophets about Ahav's proposal to attack remote Gilead is that it was typical of the kings of that era to want to know in advance what the outcome would be. This was accomplished by divination. But another reason is that Jehoshaphat needed to know if this was holy war or not. The difference between holy war and all other kinds of war is crucial. See, since the book of 1 Kings tends to focus on the, on the wicked and the godless kings of the northern kingdom, we can lose sight of the fact that the kings of Judah, though hardly perfect, still called Jehovah their God. And they maintained the Levite priesthood and, and the temple worship at Solomon's temple. The Torah was still their civil law code. And to varying degrees, Judah's kings sought to follow it. Jehoshaphat was seen as a relatively good king and his actions here indicate that. Yet one of the questions that scholars openly ask is why a Torah knowledgeable person like King Jehoshaphat would hear God's true word from Micaiah, that's the English-sized form of Michiao, why he would then go on to attack remote Gilead, and it would result in a humiliating loss. But yet he went ahead, and he did it anyway. And there really is no strong scriptural indication that God saw Jehoshaphat's participation in the battle as disobedience. Thus it seems to me that what we see here is this. As a result of Micaiah's Prophetic utterance, it became clear to Jehoshaphat that this battle against remote Gilead was not holy war. God neither ordained it, he didn't sanction this war. On the other hand, God didn't prohibit it. He merely warned that the outcome would be a serious setback. 1 Kings 22.17 says... Then he said, I saw all Israel scattered over the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And Adonai said, These men have no leader. Let everyone go home in peace. In fact, the final words of Micaiah state that the defeated armies of Israel and Judah will return home in Shalom. You don't return home in Shalom if you have a problem with God. So to be clear, it is not that God is necessarily against war that is not holy war. Rather, it is that holy war has an entirely different purpose and that God is the actual warrior leader of holy war. And thus holy war is fought under a different set of rules called the law of harem.
than regular war is. What Jehoshaphat discovered from Michal is that the battle for remote Gilead was not holy war, and so despite the warning that the outcome would be a disaster, Jehoshaphat remained hopeful that somehow these joint forces of Israel and Judah might still come out with a victory. And thus, the treatment of the all-important spoils of war would be at Ahav's and Jehoshaphat's discretion. They could keep the spoils of war. They could keep the city of remote Gilead intact and use it for economic benefit and suffer no consequences from God. But had it been holy war, the spoils would have become God's holy property. The city would have had to have been burned. So we have entirely different outcomes here, don't we? But after Michal had finished prophesying a military loss, King Ahav merely insisted that he was only lying because he had such personal animosity against the king. But then the other shoe fell. Starting in verse 19, the old prophet tells of a vision that is given in parable-like fashion. And he makes it clear that despite Ahav's insistence that the words spoken against Ahav were Mechaias, in fact, what is being spoken is from Yehovah. It is indeed a very strange vision parable. And it's set in heaven with God deciding upon how to deal with this wicked king Ahav. And in this parable, the Lord is acting much like a typical earthly king. He's sitting on his throne. He's surrounded by his royal council. And the term used for those sitting around him is the host of heaven, or in Hebrew, Savaha Shamayim. In this context, it's speaking, speaking of angels. Because the Lord had sentenced Ahav to die for his involvement in Navot's murder and theft of his ancestral land, the only thing that remained was to decide how, when the king's death sentence would be carried out. So since Ahav is considering going on this military excursion, that the Lord has determined, therefore this will be the time when the king is going to die. So the question asked is, who will entice, who will lure Ahav to decide upon going to war at remote Gilead so that he can die up there? There's a discussion among God and his heavenly hosts, and various suggestions are put forward. But finally, a spirit, a ruach, volunteered to be the one to entrap the king. And when the Lord asks the spirit how he was going to accomplish this, the Ruach said he'd do it by putting a deceiving spirit into the mouths of those 400 prophets that were advising King Ahab. And the Lord agreed, and he said, go, do it. So, says Michal, that's exactly what's happened. A parable is a metaphor wrapped in a story that creates a good illustration that is designed to be easily remembered or perhaps it helps us to understand and reveal a difficult concept. This parable was instantly understood by all involved and infuriated 
the chief of the 400 false prophets, Zedekiah. But before we talk about his reaction, let's look at a couple of points. First, this deceiving spirit is not to be taken as Satan. This is not a demonic spirit. So God is not sending a demon to these false prophets. Rather, because this is a parable, the deceiving spirit is a metaphor and it's meant to personify the spirit of prophecy. Only this spirit of prophecy is of the kind that appeals to the Yetzer Chara, the evil inclination that's built into all humans. And this evil inclination of the false prophets is being intentionally and divinely energized so that God's death sentence could be carried out upon King Ahav. Now second is that it's almost as if Ahav is committing suicide. I mean, he is on the one hand unknowingly being lured into this battle, but on the other, he has been specifically and publicly warned that if he takes this course of action, it's going to result in his death. Yet he chooses to ignore the warning and to go into battle. Michiao's parable could have been equally applied hundreds of years earlier to the Pharaoh of Egypt who refused to let God's people go until his country was decimated. And even though calamity upon calamity fell upon Pharaoh and his own advisors told him to not not keep fighting the God of the Hebrews, at times God sent a deceiving spirit to the Pharaoh that hardened his resolve. But now the Pharaoh hardened his own evil inclination, chased down the fleeing Israelites, and the end result for Pharaoh was similar to Ahaz. Thus in this situation, while the evil inclination of King Ahab and his lying prophets had been stimulated by a spirit of deception, Machiah's Yetzer Hatov, his good inclination, was stimulated by a holy spirit. And thus he told the truth. He delivered God's word accurately, even under severe threat of personal harm or maybe even execution. So in verse 24... Zedekiah, leader of these false prophets, is enraged at being told that he has but pronounced the lies of an evil, deceiving spirit, essentially used as a dupe to draw King Ahav to the just sentence of death that the Lord pronounced upon him back in chapter 20, verse 42. Now his slap on the face was meant to shame Michiao, And such a slap in public often brought about an ensuing murder. Because in the honor-shame-based society that all of the Middle East was, and mostly still is, one of the few ways available to get one's honor back is to kill the one who has shamed you. Interestingly, Zedekiah's argument was one of belittling and discrediting Machiah by saying that his own powers of prophecy were superior. Thus, the slap on the cheek was to humiliate. It was to put Micaiah in a, in a position of being seen as the inferior prophet 
to Zedekiah. But Zedekiah's action was of itself an indictment of his character and an indication of his falseness. It shows that indeed the source of his words and his deeds was his own evil inclination. In its plainest sense, the plainest sense of these passages, Zedekiah was a deluded charlatan. Michal's response was to, was to tell Zidkiel that as soon as he would be running, very soon he'd be running and hiding. Meaning, because these prophets who are, in the, who are wrong in their prophecies, well, they get killed. This is so even among pagans. And it wouldn't be long until this was going to be Zedekiah's fate. Both kings, Ahab and Jehoshaphat, are witnessing all of this happening. And the infuriated King Ahab ordered Michal back to his prison cell to be treated severely and to be fed only bread and water and a bare minimum of that. But the old prophet's response was to state the truth. Just to state what the Torah states. If the king comes back alive, he returns from remote Gilead in Shalom, like the rest of his men are going to do, then it is Mikiao who has not heard from God, and he is the false prophet. Now let me rub a little bit of salt into a wound that I've opened up on a number of occasions in Torah class. I want to dwell on it a little, because it's something that runs rampant among modern Christians and it's, it's a matter of spiritual well-being and harmony with God. For some reason, a few well-meaning people who become properly enamored with God's Word tend to get carried away. And they think they are now the bearers of God's divine oracle. Over and over, they make startling pronouncements, sometimes very pleasant and welcome. Right, about coming events. Claiming to have special divine knowledge that's been divulged only to them. They'll tell people, or tell of people, who will do certain things, predict calamities. They're often fond of telling others that the Lord has given them something to tell you. Only when some time has passed and you look back, the overwhelming majority of these prophesied events and calamities never take place. But this fact never seems to deter those who consider themselves as prophets. They just keep doing it. And have you ever noticed that the true prophets of the Bible never seem to have very happy lives? They invariably become outcasts or they die terrible deaths. Because what God usually has to say through them is not, hey, just wanted to tell you, you're all doing a swell job, keep it up. (laughs) Rather, it's almost always to harshly chastise, to warn of the people's or the king's wicked ways, and of God's displeasure with it, and about what he's going to do about it. Things people don't want to hear. Things that people vehemently deny and they naturally get exceedingly mad at the messenger. 
So I can tell you, I have no interest in being a prophet. Uh, for the life of me, I don't know why anyone would, be, would want to be a prophet. And I tell you this, not to embarrass or to condemn, but rather to caution of the great danger you put yourself in, if this describes you. Are there true prophets today? Yes, I think there must be. Although I've never, never personally met one. The biblical definition of a true prophet is one who actually hears from God and thus is, it is inherently impossible for them to ever be wrong. Whether it's in the substance or in the timing of what they have to say. The biblical definition of a false prophet is well portrayed in Mikiel's vision parable that says a spirit of deception is put into the mouth of a false prophet. Not an enlightened word from the Lord. A false prophet is a self-declared prophet, not one who's been chosen by the Lord. And we are all aware that the biblical penalty for daring to be a false prophet is death. How do we tell the difference between a true and a false prophet? Deuteronomy 18, 21-22 says, You may be wondering, how are we to know if a word has not been spoken by Adonai? When a prophet speaks in the name of Adonai and the prediction does not come true, that is, the word is not fulfilled, then Adonai did not speak that word. The prophet who said it spoke presumptuously. You have nothing to fear from him. Have you ever prophesied a word to someone and claimed that it's from God? Do you have the courage of your convictions to say at the same time as did Micaiah, that if what you are saying doesn't happen, then you are not a prophet of God. It's exactly what Michal said to the king. Did your prophecy come true precisely as you spoke it? If not, then you are acting as a false prophet, even though that undoubtedly wasn't your conscious intention. In fact, the rabbis are near unanimous in saying that the Zedekiah of our story was convinced in his mind that he was a true prophet of God. He didn't think he was telling a falsehood when he told King Ahab that he would be victorious in battle. He completely believed it. As the parable says, he believed the lie of a false spirit and so was himself completely taken in by it. But the Lord doesn't do that to his true anointed prophets, only to those self-appointed ones, no matter their sincere attempt to do good, who never had the divine authority of a prophet in the first place. Well, despite all they saw and heard, Ahav and Jehoshaphat took their armies to Gilead and they attacked. But Ahav, that double-minded coward, wasn't completely deaf, so he decided that just to hedge his bets, he'd wear a disguise when they began the fighting so that the enemy didn't know he was Israel's king. 
But then he also advised Jehoshaphat to go ahead and show up in his royal robes. I mean, it's hard to believe that the king of Judah couldn't see that he was being set up as a living decoy by Ahav. It seems that the Syrian army had a standing order when they went into battle to make a beeline towards the enemy's king and take all measures necessary to kill him as soon as possible. You see, it was typical in that era that when the king was killed in battle, the army got scared and they scattered. Ahav knew of the tactic. Jehoshaphat knew of it. So why Jehoshaphat ever agreed to be a visible target while Ahav blended in with the troops is hard to fathom. Except that he may have taken Mikiah's prophecy to heart that if any king was going to die that day, it was going to be King Ahav. And sure enough, verse 32 has the Syrian chariot commander spot King Jehoshaphat, assumed that he was the king of Israel and chased after him. No doubt because only a few months earlier they had been allies with Ahav and Israel in a war against Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, the Syrian chariot, com- uh, chariot commanders recognized right away as they closed in for the kill that the one wearing these royal robes, this wasn't Ahav. So they pulled off and they continued their hunt for the real king of Israel. But God's providence is never denied. As Ahav was riding around in his disguise in his chariot, a nameless Syrian soldier shot an arrow at random towards the crowded battlefield and it struck the only unprotected spot not covered by King Ahav's armor. He was mortally wounded. The rest of the story is gruesome, to be sure. As the king's lifeblood uncontrollably leaked from his body all over the now slippery chariot floor, and as he grew weaker and weaker, his chariot driver literally tied him to the front of the chariot so that the Israelite troops could see him and think he was still able to fight and lead. See, the driver well understood that if the soldiers knew he was dead or dying, they'd lose their courage and flee towards home. All battles in that era ended at sundown because nobody could see to fight in the dark. So as night fell, the word spread throughout the ranks to run for home. The king was dead. And Mikiah's prophecy came true just as he foretold it. Zedekiah and his 400 prophets were outed as the false prophets that they were. When the Israelites brought his corpse back to Samaria the king was given a proper burial. But in a sign of the filth and abomination that God viewed Ahav as being, his chariot was cleansed of its blood at the place where the whores of Israel bathed. The wild dogs came to lick at the king's gore that had been washed off of his royal chariot. And all this was a prophetic fulfillment of Elijah's prophecy. Elijah's prophecy that although Ahab was to die and have his body thrown in Naviot's vineyard, God would be merciful and instead have this happen to Ahab's son. In other words, Ahab would die but he would receive an honorable burial 
but some years later his son would also die but he would not be so fortunate as to have a respectful burial instead he would be dumped unceremoniously into Navot's former vineyard to be eaten by scavengers well verse 39 begins to wrap things up for this era of the kings and so the last several verses are for housekeeping purposes to tie up some loose ends we're reminded that much more than is recorded here about King Ahav is written down in the long lost annals of the kings of Israel and that his son Ahaziah was his successor now as is typical of the book of Kings King Jehoshaphat of Judah is now listed and this is so his reign can be put into synchronization with the reigns of the kings of Israel and we find that Jehoshaphat began his reign or more likely co-reign with his father Asa in the fourth year of King Ahav's reign now let me pause to say it was quite typical for a king to name his successor some years before he died. And once he did that, there was sort of a co-regency occurring in which both men were considered as kings. Of course, the father was senior, and he carried the most authority as, for as long as he was able. And we even saw this with David and Solomon. So, when we look at a chart of when it is said that a person became king, and who he took over from, oftentimes the numbers don't seem to make sense. But that's because as often as not, there was an overlap as a king and his son ruled simultaneously for anywhere from a few months to a few years. Now we're also given further information that Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he assumed the throne and that he ruled for 25 years. And he he's praised here and the in the book of Chronicles as a righteous king. Even so, he was only 60 years old when he died. Not terrible, but not a long lifespan, usually ascribed to a leader who had led with great piety. He's given an accolade that he lived in the manner of his father Asa, who followed in the ways of the Lord. But he's given one particular black mark that he also continued to allow the existence and the use of personal Bama, high places in his kingdom of Judah. See, this is referring to shrines and to altars of sacrifice. But the reason that this wasn't considered too terribly serious is that these were Bama to worship Jehovah. They weren't pagan altars to bow down to pagan gods. Yet these were not authorized altars of sacrifice as the Jerusalem temple was the only place where sacrifice to Jehovah was to occur and the temple at this time was in full operation. Even so, this black mark is balanced out in that he did rid the kingdom of cult prostitutes that his father, Asa, had allowed to continue to operate. But now we're also given the information that at the beginning of Jehoshaphat's reign, there was no king in the neighboring kingdom of Edom. This is because at that time, Edom was a vassal state operating under the authority of Judah. And King Esau had assigned a prefect or a governor over Edom. But at some point, Jehoshaphat decided to allow Edom to have a king, no doubt an Edomite, probably to quell some growing dissatisfaction of the Edomite people from being ruled by a Judahite. 
This information is included because it affects what we learn next. Jehoshaphat had entered into some kind of a joint seafaring venture with King Ahav's son, Ahaziah. Obviously, some years after Ahab's death, remote Gilead, was this arrangement was put into place. And the goal was to build and sail some large Tarshish-class ships. This, this, this shipbuilding venture took place in Edom, on the shore of what is today called the Gulf of Aqaba. It's very near the modern Israeli port city of Elat. This merely proves that there had been an extended period of peace and alliance between Ahav and Jehoshaphat quite some time before the ill-fated attack of remote Gilead. And it continued, continued on well after Ahav's death. But what is missing from this account is that Ahaziah was every bit as evil as his parents. God was very unhappy with Jehoshaphat for collaborating with such wicked people even though they were fellow Israelites. Because we find this in Second Chronicles, chapter 20, starting at verse 35. It was after this that Jehoshaphat joined up with Ahaziah, king of Israel, who was acting very wickedly. He joined together with him to build large ships capable of going to Tarshish. They made the ships in Etzion Giver. Then Eliezer, the son of Dodavau, from Merashah prophesied against Jehoshaphat. Because you joined yourself with Akhazah, Adonai is wrecking your project. And the ships were wrecked so that they couldn't go to Tarshish. Interestingly, after these Tarshish ships were destroyed, Akhazah approached Jehoshaphat for another and different joint venture involving ships. And it was that Akhazah would supply sailors to help man whatever ships Jehoshaphat already had before the Tarshish ship disaster. Now, what advantage that might be to Jehoshaphat's not recorded, but we do see that he declined the offer. The rabbis say that it was because he took to heart the word from the Lord that the prophet Eliezer had pronounced, and he knew he should no longer associate economically with the king of the northern kingdom. Well, after Jehoshaphat died, his son Jehoram, Jehoram, all right, succeeded him. And in another effort at synchronization, we're told that Ahaziah, son of Ahav, became king of Israel in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat's reign. But Ahaziah was very evil, and he ruled only two years before his accidental death. He is described as having lived the way all of the kings of Israel had since Jeroboam. That is, they all did what was evil in God's eyes. And as the leader of Israel, he led his people into sin. And thus God's anger was raised up because they worshipped and served Baal, who was his grandmother's God, or his mother's God. And so the stage is set now for the next round of the kings of Israel and of Judah. But what we're going to find is that there's only going to be a few more kings of Israel before God finally acts on a national basis 
and he allows the king of Assyria to overrun the northern kingdom and send them into exile all over the Asian continent. It's from this event that will eventually come the legend of the ten lost tribes of Israel. However, Judah is going to survive for almost 150 years after Israel is gone and so will have a larger continuous list of the kings of Judah. This ends our study of the book of 1 Kings.